Welcome to the Only One Shot Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Gallagher Jr. Don't forget to get uh, your copy of the Only One Shot by BJ Trollio, still available on Amazon. Don't forget to subscribe to wherever you get your podcast. We appreciate you listening, and uh, we look forward to uh, uh, a bunch of more podcasts in the future. And uh, today I have one of golf's best players of all time. He's won 14 times on the PGA Tour. He's a former Ryder Cup player and a former Ryder Cup captain. That's Hal Sutton. Played a lot of golf against uh, Hal, and he was one of the toughest competitors you'd ever face. He loved to win, and his passion for the game continues today. So let's see if we can get Hal on the phone. All right, let's welcome Hal Sutton to the Only One Shot Golf Podcast. Hal, appreciate you taking some time being with us today. Glad to do it, Jim. Always fun to catch up with old friends. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd like to get our guests started with, you know, how did you get started in golf? Uh, and that's what I like to find out, how they got started. So how did you get started? Who were some of your early influences? Well, I, I was playing every other sport, and a guy, a friend of my dad's gave him a set of clubs, and he said, you know, Hal's a pretty good athlete. He said, you ought to get Hal started in golf as well. And... Uh, I went out with a guy that worked for my dad, and the first day I played 45 holes on wow. a nine-hole golf course. I just loved the game so much. I was still playing all the other sports and continued to play other sports until I was 16, but I was hooked on golf, and all my free time that I had from the other sports I spent on golf. And, you know, I just fell in love with the game from the beginning. How, how important is it, I mean, and you're t- doing some teaching now, we'll get into that later, how important is it to play other sports growing up? I think it's real important. I think you learn a lot of things playing with other people. Uh, you learn uh, how other people fear doing things, you know, and mm-hmm. you see confidence levels in different people. And, you know, if you're paying attention, uh, you're going to learn a lot from other people as well as your own experiences. Absolutely. And you mentioned, you know, junior golf, doing all the other sports, but uh, you go to Centenary and you play there. Why'd you choose Centenary? Uh, That's a great question. Uh, I was recruited by a lot of different people. It came down to Houston and the Centenary. And the reason why Centenary was even in the mix was because it was at home. Mm Mm-hmm. And my dad really wanted me to stay at home. Just like most all parents out there, they want to keep a certain amount of control over their children. Mm -hmm. And my dad was, I would call him over-controlling rather than under-controlling. And in a good way, you know, Mm -hmm. he he was protective of me. And, uh, you know, there's some people that over-control to the point of it's not beneficial to them. To the child, but my dad said uh, when came down to Houston, we came down here and looked at the uh, University of Houston on a, on a recruiting trip. And Coach Williams at the time, on Sunday morning, he said, "How I want to take you to the library and show you something at the library." And I thought to myself, "Why do I want to go to the library? I mean, I am going to get an education. Mm-hmm. But I really want to see what y'all are about golf wise." not go to the library and he so we get in the library sunday morning he said now look at that house he said we have portraits of every first team all american at the university of houston and currently there's 42 first team all americans at the university of houston and you could be number 43 and there's the position they're going to right there mm. and actually that sealed the deal for centenary mm-hmm. because when i walked out i got in the car my dad asked me what i thought and i said so do you think anybody's ever going to remember number 43, Dan? Hmm. 
And, and my dad said, he knew exactly what I was talking about. He said, nope. He said, but you can be the first All-American that Seminary ever produces, and they'll always remember the guy that did it first. You know, that's a great and, answer because I, I did the same with Tennessee because I was recruited by Houston, and I just didn't want to go to a golf factory where, who knows? I mean, you were good enough to play, but, I mean, you may have sat there and, like you said, just another number. And they kind of collected right. players back then. Uh, yeah. And that was a good choice. And you all had a good team at Centenary. Uh, you were about three years older than I was, and I remember our my freshman year, you all had a really good team there at Centenary. Yeah, we, we were competitive. Uh, we finished ninth in the NCAA my senior year, and we had to count on 80 every day. We just we lacked one player mm. being, you know, one of the top-tier teams. And uh, unfortunately, uh, we just couldn't get that extra player, but we did pretty well with what we had. Yeah, and you were a great amateur player. You probably – I don't know if you remember this, but we played against each other at CCNC in 80 when you won. And uh, I always tell the story and how, how good you were. I said, you know, I was one over and got beat five and four. I said, the man took out a driver off the deck at nine. I've never seen that in my life. And I was just like, I got, I'm, I, got a, I got a slingshot here in a pistol fight. So I didn't think I had much chance. But what kept you motivated to keep getting better as, you know, as an amateur and, and as you continued on? Well, uh, I don't know. I've got caught in my own personal journey. That's what we talk about here at the academy, that this is your own personal journey. And when you get on a journey with someone else, um, the whole expectations change and everything else. I, I was able to stay on my own personal journey until actually I had some success on the on the tour. And then once you do that, then everybody else is weighing in, as you well know, with their thoughts of your failures and your successes. And, you know, then all of a sudden it becomes more difficult to stay on your own personal journey. It seems like everybody in the world is riding the journey with you. And, you know, you can't allow that to happen if you really want to be good. Yeah, you mentioned that because I remember when you won the PGA, you had those great early years. You were compared to Jack Nicklaus. That had to be a lot of pressure, wasn't it? It was a lot of pressure. You know, I mean, who who in the world other than Tiger Woods has ever really linked up to any of the comparisons of Jack Nicklaus and you know I we were completely different kinds of players and to you know all of a sudden to be compared to that guy that you think that what he did was perfect and you need to try to you know do what he did mm -hmm. instead of maximize what you have and that's why we call it here your own personal journey you know you I mean to me I mean you're going to know this better than anybody else Jim we ran around trying to get other people to help us that the world had acclaimed as a good teacher because, mm. you know, they were well known, so they obviously knew something that others didn't know, which we all know now is not always the case. Right. So in your case, your dad taught you the majority of what you know, and there's nobody that will love you and give you his honest feelings more so than your dad. In in your case, you were lucky that it was your dad. But mm -hmm. in other people's cases, it's usually they're somebody that they started working with at an early age that helped them progress rapidly, and they gain confidence and trust in that person. And that's probably who they ought to keep working with. And, uh, you know, we think that somebody will do better that maybe has more knowledge. Well, they don't have the love and the care for you that the original person had. 
you know, to me, the person that always helped me the most is the person that I knew that when I wasn't there, they were still thinking about how to help me. Right. Jackie Burke is a great friend of yours. What did you do? Did you pick his brain? What have you learned from Jackie over the years? Well, I learned a lot of things from Jackie. Most of the things I learned from Jackie were <clears throat> more about life than they were about golf. But we all know that golf parallels life. And, uh, you know, probably the most profound thing that anybody had ever said to me was, um, you know, I basically quit golf after the Ryder, after I was captain of the Ryder Cup team mm-hmm. because I got crucified for putting Tiger and Field together. And I was so disgruntled with the golf world at the time that I thought, you know what, y'all all have the answers. I'm sure you know better than me, so I'll just give it to you. And I went and developed a ranch, and I didn't even play golf for about five years. And in the middle of the fourth year, Jackie calls me on the phone, and he says, how? He said, uh, I want to uh, come out to Big Ranch tomorrow, and I want you to meet me on the tee. I want to watch you hit some balls. And I said, Jackie, I haven't hit balls in four years. And he said, see you on the tee at 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm driving three and a half hours, so be there. So I thought that was pretty cool for mm-hmm. an 85-year-old guy to do that. So I meet him on the tee, and he says, how? He said, uh, if you could sell your golf game, how much would you sell it for? And I said, hmm, that's an interesting question, but how in the world could I do that? Because it's not possible. I can't extract my game from my body and give it to someone else. He said, just come on, give me an answer. He said, if Michael Dell right over here in Austin calls you today and he says, I want to buy your game, how much would it be? He said, would it be 10, 000, 10 million? I said, at least 10 million with all the hours I've got into it. Mm-hmm. He said, so then you tell me why you would treat something as lack of the days ago as you've treated your golf game for the last four years when it means that much to you. He said, I got to go back to Houston. I'll see you later. Wow. That's awesome. That's, that's, that's <laughs> tough love, but it's, it's right. Because I remember when I was fighting it in 99, 2000 and, and trying to keep my card and sissy says, Hey, when you're home, you need to be home with your mind. And when you're on the road, your mind needs to be on the road. I mean, Bruce Litsky did it about it in Nicholas. They did it about as good as everybody, as anybody were able to separate you. You're right. And I got to the point where it's like, I hope I just lose my card. Well, you know what? I did. And, and then I wished I had it back. Uh, and it's well, tough. You, know, you know, Jim, the funny part about it is, is most of us think if we treat it that way, we'll lose it. Mm-hmm. But the beauty of it, if you treat it that way, then you keep things in perspective. Most of us got our journey and our golf game out of perspective. Mm. And everything else suffers when you get it out of perspective like that. True, true. And, 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 you, and you became a dad and part of the family thing. I know for me, I struggled with the fact of wanting to be a good dad and wanting to be around them and then trying to play. Well, what are the challenges once you become a dad and, and, and trying to be that competitive golfer? As you said, you kind of fell out of love with it after the Ryder Cup. Well, it's certainly a challenge to be uh, great at everything you do. And, I mean, we all have children. We want to do the best we can. And, I mean, we're living in a world of entitlement right now. You know, most of the kids think it because it's easy for them. And, you know, Nothing was easy for you and I, Jim. We had to, I mean, when you play a game like golf, in order for you to reach the pinnacle of the game, you have to dedicate yourself and everything you've got to it. Mm-hmm. Very few people do that by accident. It's a plan from the get-go, as you well know. And the 
further, the better you got, the further along on the journey you were, the more intense it became to maximize what you had. And, you know, trying to be great at everything is pretty hard to do. And, um, you know, like you said, Jack, Jack, Barbara Nicholas helped Jack be the great family man that he was because every time a child said something to him about her, that dad's not here and she would back him up and say he's out making a living so that you can do the things you want to do. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that's, that's, you're right. And I think for, and then the basis of this podcast and the book, only one, one shot is what separates the elite from the rest. Uh, and, and you've hit on that a little bit in your mind. What, what, what makes the elite player, the elite player? Well, the elite player is having a team of people that love him and love his mission with him so that they can help him do it. No one can do this by themselves. Mm-hmm. You didn't do it by yourself. I didn't do it by myself. There were other people that contributed along the way. And, there, and, and likewise, there are other people that take away from it, too. Right. And so you've got to be aware of everybody that's supposedly on board. And, uh, you know, it's one thing that we all had was a person that was willing to tell us the truth. You called it tough love a minute ago. Mm-hmm. I just call it the truth. Truth, yeah. You know, sometimes we're really, we're hard on ourselves, but we also let ourselves off the hook. What advice do you and, have for a young player out there now that's going through that? I mean, they're coming out there. They've all got personal trainers. they got instructors. they got mental coaches. they got all this stuff, agents. I mean, what, what advice do you have for those guys? Well, they've got a lot of teammates that we didn't have. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about it. And I'm, you know, I was always leery when, when money is involved in it, uh, you know, are they doing it because they want to really see me succeed? Or are they doing it because they want the check that I'm about to give them? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what the person I tell every kid that comes in here that are, that is trying to make it, I said, always remember, you are the CEO of your golf game. And you have to make the final decisions about what you're going to do in your golf swing, what you're going to do as far as your personal life is concerned, who is involved in your team. Are they doing the job you expect them to do on your team? Are you just accepting what they tell you? You know, I was never a guy that just totally accepted what somebody told me. Mm -hmm. I questioned. And... You know, I think, uh, in, in especially in the world we're living in today, uh, you know, when your dad told you something, you believed it was the truth. When my dad told me something, I believed it was the truth. Mm-hmm. Now I look at people telling me stuff, and I'm so skeptical. I mean, look at the political landscape of mm-hmm. the world right now. I mean, you have no idea who's telling the truth and right. not telling the truth. Well, it's kind of that way in life, period, right mm-hmm. now. That's true. And it's who you surround yourself with, and I think that's a that's a great point. I mean, truth hurts sometimes, but it also wakes you up. I, I mean, I I think it did for me when when Sissy put it in those words. I was like, you know what? I'm having a pity party. It's time to get off the pity party and get back to what the motivation to get great, to be great again. And I think I struggled a little bit when I turned fifty because I didn't play competitive golf for six or eight, ten years. Uh, you turned 50 and, and, and you played the champions tour, but what were the challenges getting back into that competitive mode after being off for those years? You said, well, my biggest challenge was my body mm-hmm. because, you know, I came back in my, because 
<clears throat> I didn't play at all. <clears throat> Excuse me, I had arthritis had set up in my hips, and I couldn't rotate like I needed to. And it hurt to post up on my left side. So, you know, I went through three hip surgeries, and um, my golf swing changed completely because I couldn't post up on my left side. So I tried to figure out any way that I could to make a decent golf swing when you can't do something. And, you know, that's great advice. What I'm about to tell everybody out there is not for the youth of America, but in some ways it is. Mm -hmm. When you're hurting, you're going to compensate to create a result. Mm. And you, you cannot you cannot continue this process. If you do, it's going to be hard to get back to the original process. True. So I should have quit entirely and gone and got my hip fixed, but yet I played for a year and a half trying to continue on, and I developed so many bad habits that, frankly, I've never overcome. Yeah, and I think it's, that's true with a lot of folks. Yeah. You, you do a lot of charity work, and, and we're going to turn into the page a little bit hurricane katrina rita brutal storms that hit both my state of mississippi and louisiana you and kelly gibbs and david toms got involved i mean how rewarding was that to see the efforts you all made to help people out and you know you used your golf and your success to help others out well it's you know we spend the first part of our career selfishly chasing our own dreams and I think after you've lived long enough and watched enough tragedy and everything else, you realize that your own personal dreams uh, are pale in comparison to the needs of others. And you begin to start thinking, what can I do? How can I use what I've done to help other people? And, you know, you get more joy out of that. I'm, I mean, I'm sitting here in my office, you know, and I'm looking at the, span the trophies in my lifetime, you know, starting from the U.S. Amateur, and probably the one I'm most proud of of all of them is the Payne Stewart Award, and that's where they, you know, recognize people that have done philanthropic contributions. And, uh, you know, I know what it took to win those other trophies, but, you know, I didn't feel the pain that everybody else felt. But to help them, you know, you, you, you feel proud to do what you can. Yeah, that was going to be the question. I mean, what are you most proud of out of your career? And it sounds like that's it. Uh, it's not always the plan that uh, you become most proud of. Well, I, the playing allowed me to be useful mm -hmm. to to be able to get enough money. So it's it's a whole journey. I mean, that's why I boiled it down to that word. This is your personal journey of your life. And, you know, you be the CEO of that. You make the final decisions. There'll be plenty of people that will suggest things to you. Make sure you pick the right things. Absolutely. And, you know, to kind of switch it around, you know, when you had some time off, you're a huge outdoorsman, you love horses. Uh, was that kind of an escape from golf for you early on, or just you just always loved that growing up? Well, that was an escape. Uh, honestly, I kind of got fed up with the whole uh you're not living up to the, our expectations uh, in 87, 88, 89, and I started buying horses and escaping to that because it was the only thing that I could do that I could really put a personal, um, put the same kind of energy into mm -hmm. it that I was putting into golf, basically. And I felt like I could be competitive in that. 
uh, an escape. I, I couldn't get better at that and be thinking about golf constantly. So it allowed me to escape golf. So. Yeah, and it made you and kept you competitive because you're you're always a competitive person. I think no matter what you're doing, even what you're doing now with the House Hunt Golf Academy, it keeps that competitive those competitive juices. But you know, when you have a kid walk into your academy and 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 you know what what do you do? What's the first thing you do when a kid walks in? Uh, to get kind of a preview of what they're trying to do. What do you guys do when they first come in to, to see you? We get to know them. You know, uh, we know what they're thinking. We ask what they're thinking. We ask, you know, most of the time they come in with a parent, maybe sometimes both parents. And we get to know them as people. Uh, we get to find out what their interests are, what their tendencies are, what, uh, you know, we ask them a lot about their golf game. Okay, you know, what does your mind's eye see? What kind of shot do you want to hit? What kind of shot are you hitting? Where is your miss going? So we really get to know them without going out and playing around the golf before we ever watch them swing the first time. Yeah, that's and important. you know, you got to know them as a person. You got to know what their tendencies are. You got to find out if they're timid or if they're aggressive, and uh, you can find that out if you ask the right questions. How much involvement do you allow the parents uh, to have when they're there? Are they just sitting? I think it was Scott Hamilton said, there's the parent chair, you go sit in that, and I've got the teaching chair, and this is what we're going to do. I mean, how much involvement are there? Are you helping teach the parents as well? Well, I try to get that out in the open beforehand. I try to say, look, this is not only his lesson, but it's yours too. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I have right above my computer is a picture of my dad and I together when we're holding the Wanamaker Trophy when I won the PGA and I make both parents and student look at that picture and I say okay y'all look at that and I said from the smiles on those faces if you didn't know who won the tournament could you tell me which one won the tournament Mm. and they look at me kind of funny and I said you know you don't know the correct answer the correct answer is we both won that day yeah and I said so here's the reason why I do this is because right now the student the child is saying this is my life and the parent is saying, yes, it is your life, but you need me. You need my experience. You need my money. You need everything else in order to achieve your goals. So you are a team. And both you, I said, let's just take Aaron Rodgers and the coach at uh, at Green Bay Packers. Mm-hmm. Do you think the coach knows everything about quarterbacking that Aaron Rodgers knows? Do you think he, Aaron Rodgers agrees with everything that the coach says? The answer is no. Right. So – the truth of the matter is they have to find a mutual respect for each other and realize they both bring something different to the table. Yeah, that's a good and thing. Cause I've heard, I kind of get them on board together. Right. I've heard people even out of junior tournaments, my girls played, my son played. It was like, all right, thank your parents for taking you and being part of your journey with you. And I think it's right. important uh, to get that across for both. I mean, they got to kind of understand. I think sometimes we, we all, as parents, we want the best for them. Some parents play, live their life through, or their sporting life through their kids, and you got to be aware of that. I know for me, watching my girls play college golf, I always had to be aware of my body language. If I'm sitting over there or hiding, I never hid behind a tree. I always encouraged them and, and, and tried not to show it because Sissy says they can see you over there with your arms folded. And, and I mean, yeah. you really have to pay attention to that. Well, I just tweeted out something the other day. You did. Be aware of the uh, the look on your face when there's something that happens, you know, because kids are looking for anything that either spells displeasure or approval. They're looking for both things. 
approve of me if you can. And if you can't, don't disapprove of me. Right. And, you know, nothing made me happier than pleasing my dad. And, you know, everything that I did, I wanted to try to please him. And I'm sure the same was true for you. Your dad put so much effort into you, Jim, that, you know, you know what I'm talking about when your dad won too, when you won. Oh, absolutely. He he actually caddied for me for two state am titles, and that's one of the most priceless pictures I have of him giving me a hug. We won it back-to-back years, and he still talks about that. I had him on the podcast because I wanted to hear his views of everything, you know, having two or three kids make it to the pros and everything, and, and I think it's just so important. I think another thing for the kids is don't let your success or your failures define who you are as a player or a person because I think sometimes you fall into that trap, don't you? Absolutely. You know, um, in order to make it in this game, you're going to understand exactly. I mean, you think that your success was defined by your golf game, so therefore your success as a human being is defined by that too. Mm. And it's a trap that we all fall into, and, you know, we got to be careful about that. I mean, that's where tough love comes in. That's where you trust somebody else that's close to you that says, hey, you know, you're still a great person, even though you. I mean, I just gave this lesson to a little girl that plays lessons for bus yesterday. She had a tough day. She was really hard on herself. She shows her anger. And I said, Look, I said, you're doing that as much for other people as you are yourself. You're mm-hmm. trying to let other people know you care. I said, It doesn't matter what other people think. Yeah. You need to get control of your life. You need to get control of yourself on the golf course. And, and fight the battle within. Don't fight the battle outside because college coaches are looking for people that have self-control. Mm-hmm. They're not looking for people that don't have self-control. There's a lot of truth to that, and every coach that I've had on this podcast says the same thing. They're watching how they handle all kinds of situations, good and bad, uh, and they don't always know that but just watch it. But you can pretty much tell uh, – if you spend enough time recruiting, of course, now with the pandemic, they haven't been out recruiting and everything. But uh, you mentioned, you know, you're, you're working with these kids, and now technology's changing, instruction's changing, fitness is part of that. Do you all play a lot, Use all those things play a part in, in what you guys are trying to accomplish there? Oh, absolutely. You know, <clears throat> the te- if you and I had had the technology that these kids have today, we wouldn't have had to hit as many balls as we did. And mm. the best part about this is, we can document when we're doing it well, and it's right there in front of you in, in, with data. Mm-hmm. And then when you're not doing it as well, we had to dig it out of the dirt. We just had to do it through hitting enough golf balls that we finally accidentally ended up back where we were. But the truth of the matter is this helps us find what we're doing wrong quicker. And, uh, I mean, the kids have such an advantage today. They do. They do. And, and they talk about technology, the golf ball. I mean, we'll get into a little of that because people have been talking about dialing it back. And to me, and I don't know how you feel on it, but to me, it's the only game where we're trying to go backwards. I mean, maybe we can just embrace how good these people are. Like you're saying, the technology's there, their fitness is there, they're figuring out. Now they're going to 46 inch drivers, they're tipping it, they're doing different things, they're figuring out through their technology and the stuff that's out there how to hit it longer, and how to get better. But long and straight, and that's what DeChambeau's done. He's putted well. So he's kind of put the whole combo in there. They're using him as the model, but he's actually worked his tail off to get it all done, not just the long ball. Well, it's interesting what's going on right now. You know, the manufacturers, 
have kind of tricked everybody in a lot of ways. You know, we've got some older people that come in, some really good people that play high-end golf, and they think they're still hitting their irons as far as they ever did, mm. but yet their driver won't go as far. And the reason why they think that is because their seven iron now is an old five iron. That's true. In terms of loft. That's true. And, I mean, they've been tricked. They've actually been tricked. And, <clears throat> you know, the reason why, I mean, the manufacturers have created this distance phenomenon because it's measurable. Mm-hmm. You know, you can measure how far you hit it. But see, it's hard to measure great putting. True. True. So it's harder to talk about. It's harder to find. It's more personal. And, you know, you see it. You recognize it when you see it. For instance, when Jordan Spieth was making all these putts, I mean, you, you see it. You recognize it. You can't define it. But when somebody's hitting that long like DeChambeau is, we can put some real, uh, some 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 uh, pluses that he's doing, like longer driver, more speed, the things that are adding up to measuring the distance. <clears throat> I think what I love yeah, I think it's you're right about the irons. I mean, I'm like you were talking before we we started the podcast is. We're not hitting it anywhere, but my irons are going just the same distance. I'm going, wait, you big dummy. That's really not what it is. I mean, your seven iron is really a five iron, and that's the only reason because you can't hit your driver any further. Um, but technology's good. It can also, I don't know if it can cripple you, but you can fall in love with it too much. But I, I think these these kids and these instructors, they, they've got it out there in front of them. They're using it. Fitness is part of it. We had fitness some. Greg Norman was big about it. Tiger kind of took it to another level. Uh, but the information is out there, and, and I think we just have to sit back and embrace just how good these guys are. There's so many good players, and there were great players when we played, but there's so many more from all over the world. This game is such a world game, and I think that's what you're seeing now, and golf is as competitive as it's ever been, and in good hands. I think these guys are figuring out Instagram and, and how to be a little more uh, involved with the, with the fans, although we haven't had fans this year. But it, the game's really changed, and it's probably changed for a good thing. Well, Jim, when you and I learned how to play golf, we fell in love with golf because we love the game. Mm. And the best athletes followed the place where they thought they could make the most money. Mm. Well, certainly golf wasn't that. But now golf is that. I mean, you can make a lot of money playing golf. The best players in the world making lots of money right mm-hmm. now. And so what happens is, you know, it's not that we weren't great athletes. We were told uh, to not work out. Yep. When I first went out there, they said, don't work out, it'll hurt your game. Yep. And, you know, what we believe to be true is way different now than it was then. We have elevated in every way in this sport. And, you know, sometimes when people don't want the game to progress, it's because they're locked into what they did. And trust me, what I did, I wouldn't teach anybody to do mm-hmm. it the way I did it. I mean, it's there's a much better way than the way I ended up swinging. And so anyway, I mean, the evolution, that's what made me do this. I wanted to put some definition to what I did and to what people are doing today. Well, how do they, and, get, how do they get in touch with you? How do they get in touch to find you to get a lesson from you guys? And how do they find the uh, Hal Sutton Golf Academy? Well, it's Hal Sutton Golf. Just go to the internet, and all the information is on there. Uh, love to have anybody come to, that wants to come. 
and uh, you know I, I got Chase Cooper to come in here with me, and he taught three-dimensional stuff from my swing for he traveled around the world teaching everybody. He worked with Bryson DeChambeau mm-hmm. for a year in in uh, 3D. And, I mean, he's as knowledgeable as anybody I know about that. And that's why I got him to come in with me. And it's been exciting. It's been fun. It's been growing. And we're helping people. And you're just on the north side of Houston. Is that right? Yeah, we're in the Tampkins area, uh, 25 minutes from uh, one of the biggest airports in the world. So, Well, there you have it, folks. Well, Hal, I've taken up enough of your time. appreciate you being on. And I always kind of like to end it on this, remembering life for golf. You may have only one shot. you got to make it count. You've made it count, and you're making it count. You're passing on that knowledge to others, and we appreciate you being with us. Well, I appreciate it, Jim. Always great to be your friend. Good man. Well, that's part of the game is uh, is the friendships you made. I had Bob Walcott on. I said, what were you most proud of? He said the friendships he made along the way, and, and that's true, and that's, that's what this is all about. Yep, that's exactly right. All right, buddy. Thanks for being with us. All right. Thanks, Jim. Bye.